Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Thursday. I just got back from Shulam. I've got an hour to Mincha. So let me see if I can do this Parsha thing now. Uh, today's uh, podcast is being sponsored by the Shulchan family. Today's the first yard set of Jake Shulchan. For those of you who didn't know him, he was uh, one of the nicest people in Baltimore, maybe the nicest. Very fine person, very nice, fine person. Normal. He's one of a rare breed. From a normal. You don't see that too often these days. And, a, you know, a, a chesed, a, just a, a, a fantastic guy. Um, and so uh, I'm happy to do some tribute to his memory. Uh, now, uh, and his kids made a nice scene last night. It's a very uh, nice situation. You know, can't, I, know, I can't always say that honestly about people. But about Jake Shulchan, there's nothing big you can say. Um, now, Parshas Lech Lecha is so chock full of these nuggets that it's studded, in my opinion, with all kind of uh, little subject that could develop into an entire thing of its own, entire theme of its own. So I just want to devote a few minutes to uh, things about the Brisbane of Sarum, things like that. This middle, um, what do you call it, this middle uh, set of stories, you know, uh, Parsha is very obscure, there are a lot of things they leave in, leave out, and put in wrong places, and I even said, by the way, to Jake's family, yesterday, to the kids, to the boys, they said, oh, you know, it's going to be Parsha's Lech Lecha. you know, someone's yard says Lech Lecha. and I said, the difference between your father and Abba Avinu, Abba Avinu is the following, Abba Avinu was the first ball, she was a BT, that's a fact. And that is the reason God said, get out of your father's house. That's the Pashib shot. And Chazal say it also, you know, in Mesopotamia, there's a matter like that. In Mesopotamia, you'll be nothing, but if you go to Canaan, you'll be something. And basically, Avram had a negative influence in the family. And we see to all BTs, if necessary, you know, Lech Yeah. Now, not always, sometimes family cooperates, and it's a nice uh, situation, but not rarely. You say, Lech Lamerza Go to another place. This is the story of half, at least half the BTs. And Abraham Avinu leads the way. And that means he didn't get along with his family so well. And understand this well. He does not take his father with him to Canaan. You understand that? That tells you a lot. He took a load, even though he didn't think the world of him. But he did not take his father. Now you might tell me, Oh, Terach died at the end of Parshish Noach. Look it up. Do the work. You go into Chazal's, and they'll tell you that's actually misdated. Is Rashi said maybe? I don't know. I don't know if Rashi says it. But actually, Terach dies later in, um, in uh, Lech Lecha. But it doesn't mention it that way, because otherwise it would reflect poorly on Abraham, who left his father to die alone. Uh, that's what the Chazal say. Uh, and so for the average person who can't read a Medrash, as far as you know, the father died and then Avram later on went to, to, to Canaan. You know, uh, But really, the father was alive. 
And especially if you go with the Chazal I spoke about last year, I believe, that Av made actually two trips. In other words, he went from Ur Kasim to Charan, and then when he was in Charan, he made an exploration trip when he was 70 years old. That's where he had the war with the kings and all this other stuff. And then he finally returned back. And then he made final Aliyah, 75. The father was still alive. And only later does he uh, go away. As a matter of fact, if you're into these Midrashim, uh, you wonder how come Sarah died a lo- later alone? Because it says, you know, and then, and then Avram showed up. And I think they say he had gone to visit his father or something like that and bury him. And that's when Sarah died. The words, something along those lines. So I'm just telling you that Avram Avinu had to go Lech Lomar to Bezavicha. But uh, Jay Shuchman, who's FFB and from a very nice family, is Lech Lecha, Le'artzcha, Le'molatzcha, Ulebezavicha. He had very good parents, a very good family. That's why he turned out such a nice person. And he always tried to imitate his parents. You know, old school, old school, from a normal. And and therefore, you don't go away from your father's house, you go to your father's house. And that El Arzashayrecha, and that will lead you to Ganadin. All right, that's a little sermon. Now, and you look at the Parsha today, there's so much, as I said before, my thoughts were just direct along the following lines. We have this uh, very dramatic situation where, as I say, Abraham comes the first time on an exploration trip, pilot trip, I was told it's called, to check out what Eretz Yisrael is like and all that. And he gets involved in the war of the four kings and the five kings. And as we know, he beats him. And, uh, and he fights, remember, in a guerrilla warfare, hit and run, from Angedi more or less, up to uh, Teldon, up near Damascus, all the way up north. Uh, by the way, I just saw Cheskuni the other day, who says, why Damascus? Eliezer was in his army, and Eliezer had relatives there, they, they're like Arab clan, they joined the fight against the four kings. That's not a cute line. But anyway, it's a Cheskuni. But um, what happens over here then? Then something very, very interesting. Listen uh, closely. You have to read this stuff closely. Uh, Avram defeats uh, the enemy, as we know, and he is uh, victorious. And by and fame on Chovash, a small domestic, he he smashes the enemy again and again all the way up north to Damascus. And either they fall apart like Napoleon's army run away from Russia, or they or they run away. By Yashem is called Rechush, because then he returns back, just Shtelzich for as they say. Imagine in your mind. Abraham, on the victorious march back from uh, Damascus area to Engedi. Uh, that's what happens. And he's got a ton of stuff in his wake. All the captives and all the wealth and all the stuff that the four kings captured in their various wars, Avram got it. Right? Fair and square in battle, as they would say today. And by the way, you know, there are a lot of Chazals, the Messianic ones, Let's say, see, you know, uh, the Chazal, in their Messianic visions, attribute great significance to the war of the four and five kings. And they say that the Geul in the end, Mashiach time will be a war of Gogomoga, which will be a world war of some kind or another. It'll be roughly analogous to a war of four kings and five kings, roughly analogous. And by the time it's all over, Avram will triumph if you, if you follow the pattern. So that'll be the final redemption for the Jews. That's one Mahalachim, um, Jewish eschatological thought. Now, it says over here that he's coming back. See, he brought back a ton of human beings. 
Now, these were the population of Sodom and other places who had been captured as prisoners in war. No, in the old days, you captured somebody. It's like the ISIS nowadays. You're a prisoner. You're a slave. So all these people have been taken as human bondage by the four kings. That's how they fight wars in the Middle East. And now that Avram smashed the four kings, these people now come under the shoes of Avraham. So he has fallen heir to all the money and all the human beings that are there. right? And the Pusset goes on to tell you that. I mean, the Torah, actually, as we all know, is pretty sparse. It shares very little information. So if it tells you, Vayoshev is a Rechush, okay? The I hear that because you want to know that he went to war to save Lot, and he not only saved Lot, but he saved his money. What do we got to tell me that for? What are you going to tell me that for? Well, so you'll say, for what's coming up with Sodom. By the next Pasuk says, that as Abraham is coming back, now, to be exact, he lived in Hebron, in Eilani Mamre, which is not far from En Gedi. In other words, not far from the site of the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea didn't exist at that time. It was Sodom and Amorah and those cities. So Abraham, as we all know, lives in the vicinity of that area, and he's returning home in triumph. And if you will recall, he had taken his buds, these Goyim, under Eshkol Mamre, uh, with him as allies in the war. Which is just interesting, because later on he'll tell the king of Sodom, I don't want a penny, but honor I don't want a penny from you, but my allies, who are Arabs, you know, Canaanites, that's the Middle East, they kill on my behalf, and therefore they're entitled to their spoil of the loot and booty. So, they, and, and by the way, they can get away with because they're going. If Avram does it, people say, cheek Jew. That's what the king of Sodom. But they can get away legitimately. I'm simply mentioning this, so that Avram undertook a war with 318 men, plus honor Eshkol Mamre, you know, Oh, it's plus some other allies. You know, it's not you, you don't quite get that, and especially if you go with the Chazal, that it was Eliezer, the Gematria, but put that aside. Let's go push him shot. So he organized and filled up a little army, and these are guys who took down the four kings. So he's coming back with the Noshim and the Om, and the king of Sodom goes towards him to greet him. The king of Sodom, who barely escaped with his life, he goes out towards Avraham, who's returning in triumph. To a certain place. But before the king of Sodom can get there, another guy shows up. It's very, very interesting. So the king of Sodom is heading towards Abraham. But somebody else beats him out to get there first. Who beats him out? Afrumi beats out the king of Sodom. Now, by the way, it's very interesting. The king of Sodom brought nothing. He just came with the, the you know, plea, give me the, the give me the, the people and keep the rechush. He didn't give Abraham nothing. The king of Sodom only cares about himself. This guy brought Lechem Bayonian. Uh, notice, let's read Pashib Shah for a second. That you can use. They've been fighting like crazy. They've been fighting for days. I might remind you that they didn't sleep. Thoralbag has a whole thing on this. Gersonides about how they were lacking sleep because they're fighting at night. And then later on, Avram has that deep sleep. And uh, they're hungry. And Malchitzedek, Melch Shalem, one of the local kings, brings the food. Food and drink. That's something. By Rechei Vayomar. And he also gave him a bracha. Baruch Avram, Le'elo, Yon, Kanishamai, Baruch. 
So I bless Abraham and I bless the high God. No, it's Hashem. And uh, and as a reward for that, right? Avram says, "You did me a nice favor. Now I appreciate the bracha." And you know, you go to a Rebbe, you don't go empty-handed. He gave him ice and So he gave him ten percent of the spoils. So that was the best bargain that this Malki Tzedek guy ever did, because he got ten percent of the spoils of the war <laughs> without fighting. This is all the stuff of the four kings plus their captives. Remember, they went on gangbusters down the other side of Jordan. They destroyed one kingdom after another and took all that loot and all this kind of stuff. And at the end, Avram gets it all because of those night fights and how he defeated the four kings. And Malkik said he gets 10% of all that. That's a good deal. <laughs> Next time you see a guy coming back from battle, give him a bracha. Maybe he'll give you 10% of what he won, of what he won in the war. Okay? That's why you tell Masami Kol. Now, after that, right, after that encounter, the king of Sodom approaches Avram and said, Tainli Anevish Rechush Kachloch. Famous line. You keep the money, but just give me the people back. And Avram says, You keep it all. I don't want a penny. I don't want any of your money. So, what it sounds like is the following. If you deduct uh, 10%, and it wasn't only the stuff of Saddam, so in other words, they had a belt of wealth there. So, you all the wealth that belonged to Saddam, Amor, Admet, Swayim, and so forth, you can identify and take back, and you can keep your people too. Like you, take, you take your people. It's a nefesh, but it's tainly a nefesh. Give me the nashim, the arm, the this, that, and the other. You can keep the people too, okay? Um, which, which is just interesting. And remember, the idea is I don't want because I don't want you to go around like an anti-Semite saying, "Oh, the Jew took every little money." Right? I want to, um, uh, you know, saying, uh, I want to uh, uh, go around and boast that I made Abraham rich or something like that. Next time, you Abraham walks around with a ring on his finger or sorrow, they'll say that's really mine. I don't want to hear any of that stuff. Right? I don't want to hear any of that stuff. So fine. So he returns everything, and the story goes on. And next line, you see, Avram gets a new level of Nebuah, like the Ramban says, you know, now it's a Machzeh. So, uh, this might be the first time he gets like a heavy-duty Nebuah. Ever. And he says, Avram said, what about kids? And he said, you'll have children. And uh, he says, look at the stars in the sky. And, uh, you know, and he says, I've, I've taken you here. And we see with me your costume. And Abram said, Bamo Eda Kirashana, the famous line. How do I know? Uh, I want a uh, guarantee. Which, incidentally, you find many times in the Bible. I remember Gideon said, you know, prove it to me that you're real and real thing. I think Yeshua also said, prove it to me. Give me a sign that you're going to be on my side. People are, are lacking in confidence when you're dealing with their bunch alone. Totally understandable, right? And uh, then he does the Brisbane of Sun, which is very hard to understand, but he had, you know, three uh, animals and uh, birds and all that kind of stuff. And there, as we all know, he tells them, you want to know the future. The future is, is that your children will be slaves in Egypt. Uh, well, what a bummer, right? They'll torture them there. 
In the end, this is the story we all know. So, what's the shot over here exactly? Listen closely. If you look in the Chazal, they ask a famous question, which is, why did the Jewish people have to suffer? Why was Avram told his children have to suffer slaves in Egypt? What did they do wrong? Right? What did they do wrong? So I remember, it's three-way thing, Rav Shemul and Rabbi Yochanan. I can't remember what Rav said, but Shmuel said something along the lines that, um, you know, he had a little faith. You know what I'm saying? He had a little faith. Hold on one second. Here it is. Uh, it's a Gemara. Why was Avram punished that his children had to suffer so much in Egypt? Three opinions. Right? So uh, the first opinion is, I guess, Whoa, because he drafted the Yeshiva boys. Uh, Avram had a Yeshiva, apparently, something like, something like that, of course. The Chanicha were the people he was training. Uh, let's put this in perspective. Abraham is the first monotheist. He's actually going out there to try to have a special school to train other ex-polytheists to become monotheists and then go out like Labavish and be Shlichem else, elsewhere and spread the word. And now he misused them by fighting the four kings. Well, that's a very B'nai Brak type part, you know. Drafting the uh, B'nai Torah is the biggest sin. And because he did that... So the rest of us had to suffer for years in Egypt. Okay. Shmuel said the one we usually would think of, which is, he had little faith. He uh, challenged the Midos of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and he said, how do I know that I'll inherit it? God just told you you're going to have a kid. Shut up, you know? Go with it. Uh, how do I know? So because he had little faith, they were punished. This would be the idea of a theologian. Now, the worst sin is the sin of little, of no faith. You know what I said? The worst sin, like Apicorsus, things like that, you know, the worst sin is, is mental sins rather than physical sins. And that's how the Gemara organized it. You know, it says, those who do assays, los assays, but the minim and the Apicorsum, they really burn in hell. But Rabbi Yochan is the thing that catches my attention. Well, Rabbi Yochan, how does he understand the reason that the Bnei Israel had to be slaves uh, all this time? And he says, I think it's fascinating, that he prevented people from becoming Jews. So what does that mean? It means that Avrab won a great victory over the four kings. He came back with a belt of loot, and a huge amount of human beings. They now belong to him by right of conquest. They now long in my right of conquest. He could now say, this is a heaven-sent opportunity that's nothing but the literal truth. It says, you know, Hashem was on his side, etc., etc., in the battle. So, Avram came to Canaan. He would like to spread monotheism. It says, Hashem and all that. Here you get even better than that. You have a belt of people, I don't know how many, it was a ton of people, who were prisoners, POWs, whatever, the slaves of the four kings, now they're your slaves. So guess what? You can now control them totally. You own them by right of conquest. You can make them believe in one God. You won't have to give Muslim Shemuzes and the other. You're their boss, you're their owner, and you can say, okay, guys, from here on, we begin a class 
in Yerushalayim, right? And believe in one God. And instead of doing that, what does he say? Go back to Sodom. And what does Avram reply to the king of Sodom when he said that? I don't want anything. Which means, Avram said, I'm going to show what a big, classy guy I am. I'm not a cheap Jew. Keep the money and keep the people. Keep the money people. So because, now I'm going to tell you the superficial shot, as I understand it, and then the deeper shot. That's the point I want to make today. Uh, this just occurred to me this afternoon. Avram is he returned all these people back to Sodom. So he returned them to a immoral lifestyle. And by the way, in doing this, he condemned them all to death. Because not too long after this comes the destruction of Sodom. Am I right or am I wrong? If you want to be exact, uh, it's about, uh, 50, uh, about 20 years later. About 20 years later. He's 70 around this time, according to the Seder Olam. And what was he, 90 or so when Yishmael was born? Is that right? And um, that's around the time when, when Sodom was destroyed. Now, uh, maybe a little bit later, maybe 10 years later by, by the three angels and, and the beginning of Aira. 30 years later, they're all wiped out. He did not do them a favor by returning them to Sodom. And he forego, he forewent an unbelievable cure of opportunity. Sirius is like a, what should I say, an NCSY board, a cure board, a Labavish board. You understand? <laughs> no, a, 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 you know, a cure board. You had all these people in your hands and you let them go. God says, I hate that. I'm going to punish you for that and your children will suffer and be tortured in Egypt for hundreds of years. My goodness. That's Rabbi Yochanan, the great Rabbi Yochanan, the Amorah. Now, you're going to ask me the following question. Um, why were the Jews then punished in that particular way? Your children be in Egypt. You know, how's that a fitting punishment? That question led me, it's an obvious question, to look at it a little bit more sharply focused. The children of Abraham, the grandchildren, whenever, became slaves. Because Abraham said, you go back to Sodom. Who were the Noshim and the Om and all the rest of it? Yes, they included citizens of Sodom, but they also included a ton of Avadim and Shvachos. Because Sodom, like all the societies at that time, was a slave society. Not only that, I strongly suspect that since Sodom is always portrayed as the epitome of ruthless capitalism, Sodom and Gomorrah in rabbinic thought, in biblical thought, is like Ayn Rand. You understand? It's a pure uh, selfishness. I'm not taking anything that doesn't belong to me, but you can't take anything to me. I'm not taking anything that belongs to me, but you can't touch anything of mine. Okay? And the result is, he had this uh, society, you know, I don't have to tell you this, that Sedum was this utter, you know, selfishness. Selfishness is not the right word, exactly, but this business of no mercy. You know, we all get a, it's pure capitalism. You know, if I make my money, heck with you. If you can't make it, it means you can't cut the mustard. So we call this in modern times, neoliberalism, discipline of the marketplace. This is what Saddam was about. So a society like that is very heavily going to be in slavery for the simple reason that if you can't pay your credit card bills, you become a slave. This is how 
throughout history, until very recently, people dealt with debts. Remember the debtors' prisons in England and things like that? If you got in over your head and you couldn't pay, there had to be a penalty. And they'd put you in jail for life or make you, or, or send you to Australia to be a, a slave there or a, a galley slave in different countries and places because you couldn't pay your debts. Uh, and this was seen in pre-modern society as meet a connect and meet it. You know, you got in over your head, so now you have to be a slave. Even in the Torah, we have the concept of a Jew becoming a slave because he can't pay his debts or can't pay what he owes, uh, you know, things like that, damages, whatever. The only difference is we have limitations. It's uh, That's one of the enlightened things in the Torah. Can't be a slave for more than uh, six years, right? But in the old days, people lived and died in debtor's jails. In the Middle East, you don't live in a debtor's prison. You were much a slave. And the slavery was harsh, because why not? Right? If it's an utterly capitalistic and ruthless society, slave exists for me to get my best uh, results out of them. So I pay, feed them as little as possible, make them work as much as possible, working it out scientifically like you would with a behemoth. And so you make the maximum income and the minimum, hopefully, expenses. And that's the basis upon which the dome was built. And uh, it says, Zakastum of Amur Boilai, the cries of Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, the Chazal said it was this girl that they killed and all that. The Pashib shot is, it was a society which practiced a great deal of cruelty to those who were unfortunate in that society. So what I'm saying is like this. Avram did something very ruthless. He, he won all the slaves of Sodom and the regular population. He brought them back. And because he wanted to show he's a big-time Charlie and not a cheap Jew, he said, Keep all the money. Uh, meaning, and keep the people. So all those people were returned to Sodomite servitude. Okay? Which was terrible. Think about it. Why do we call Sodom sodomy? You understand? In other words, what they did to the slaves, all kind of sexual things and all kind of physical things. Who the heck knows, right? Who knows? Uh, and so he did something very bad. I'm trying to understand Rabbi Yochanan. He did do something very bad when he sent all these people back to the dome because he wanted to say, Lo Samarani Hashart Yitzam. I don't want you to be able to say that took a penny from you. So he let his pride, Jewish pride even, get in the way of what he should have thought of, which is, the heck with this king of Sodom. The guy's naked, he lost everything. I'm going to keep all the people. And I want, and, 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 to serve in the house of Abraham <laughs> was a Ghanaian <laughs> compared to what it was at Sodom. You understand? In the house of Abraham and Sarah, they had slaves, but they didn't work them to death. They treated them well. I think you, we all know the story. Hagar said, I'd rather be a, a, a maid by Abraham than a princess in Egypt. Meaning, the slaves of Abraham were treated decently. And I don't know exactly, but his main focus, certainly by this stage in his life, was not to be waited on hand and foot, but rather to enlighten the slaves and turn them into believers in God. And I guess, I bet you then they were freed, or de facto freed. You know, in other words, they didn't have a harsh existence. And so, from the human being perspective, I think this is very interesting. From the human being perspective, the best thing Avram could have done was say like this, I'll give you nothing. <laughs> you king of Saddam, Heck with you, you got what's coming to you. You understand? You got what's coming to you. And I wanted more fair and square. And I can tell you, any guy, then and now, 
which say to anybody who says, Tainly on Nefesh, he says, Sorry, buddy, you lost in a war, it's mine now. And that's nobody can say boo. But Avram, for some reason, said boo. And he said, you keep, you keep everything. And different Rabbi Yochanan says, He prevented a belt of people which literally means entering under the wings of the Shekhinah, and it can have a sublime meaning, which is had they moved to live under Avram, their life would have been dramatically improved. Uh, obviously, spiritually, that goes without saying, but even physically, you know what I'm saying? Even physically, it would have been, you know, uh, just unbelievable. But he didn't do that. He said, Avram wasn't thinking that day that way. Now, let's be fair. This is Avram at the beginning of his career. It's the first time he's in Israel. He didn't really speak to God yet, exactly. This is not for Hashem Lech Lecha. This is before that, I told you. Korni Chazal, that takes place in the second trip. First time he's going on his own. He didn't grow up in a firm family. He grew up in a, a slave-holding society. Uh, already earlier than that, he said, and Gamalim, Basonos, you know, that's who they were. And uh, he dealt with it, you know, in a, in a tough way. But not if you're the new Abraham. You understand? You can't be, listen closely, you can't be a monotheist who is ruthless in business. So can I use that expression? Monotheism means not only you believe in a single God, but you believe in the Rabboni Shalom, who is the You understand? The God in the Jewish religion, God is not merely the source of all power and existence, he's also the source of all good. You know what I'm saying? We believe, and this is not a double pushet, just it's been pushed because we've been preaching this for 3,000 years now. We believe in a God who is omnipotent and all that sort of thing. But this God, we say, is nice. Now this is different than the animal kingdom. In the animal kingdom, in the state of nature, even among the plants, the stronger kill the weaker. You get it? Azegetos. The, the more powerful devour the less powerful. To say that you have an all-powerful God who created a world with people and animals, this and that and the other, is itself making a revolutionary statement from a philosophical perspective. This God did not create all this to destroy it, because why would he create it in the first place? So therefore, that's the meaning of Olam Chesi that you hear these cliches. It means the very act of creating a world when you could destroy it means he wants the world to survive. He wants the world to go on. And the folly of man being what it is, so there are trials and tribulations along the way. But the idea is to have something positive, create something good. And that's why when the Torah is given, it says you got to be nice, you got to be kind, <laughs> right? There's a, and so on and so forth. You know, in the animal kingdom, there's no kabbalah by a, a Velta Bahamian. I learned this when I was driving to Teaneck a couple years ago with my son, Shmuley, just before he was married. He listened to Jordan Peterson. I haven't even heard of the guy. But for three hours, I had Jordan Peterson. And he was talking about the monkeys and this animal and this animal. And I didn't know this. By all these animals, once the uh, children grow up, they kill the parents or, or eat them. You know what I mean? It's like shocking. That's the way of the world. The human being's not supposed to be like that. Now, Saddam was like it, but the human being's not supposed to be like that. And so Avram is on a voyage of knowledge. And he believes there is a single God. I don't know if he's already holding by the point that this God is all good, and this God is 
he likes widows and orphans and all that kind of stuff. I don't know. You don't know either. Uh, by the time it's over, he understands that because once he gets in the vua and all his business, things look different. Now, you might then tell me, since he know, why is he punished? You know, if Avram didn't know and something he only discovered later on, why should his children be punished when he returned all these uh, victims to uh, slavery? Do you follow what I'm saying? Let me give you an American example. I'm making this up. Suppose a guy captured in 1810, uh, you know, a thousand Negro slaves who were suffering like crazy. But because, here's a better one, War of 1812. It, it, you know, the British, they captured, I don't know, a thousand Negro slaves who were, were being worked to death in the South, the Old South. And you got a chance to free him. And instead you say, ah, go back to your master. Uh, you did a terrible thing from the human being perspective. They can say, no, it's their property. And according to the laws of, you know, of the countries and the property, I'm just uh, following it out. That's just a domina moro. You see? Because you're condemning people, men and women, to, 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 to terrible suffering. That's what Avram did. So why are you punishing him then, right? Why are you punishing him for not, for doing something that he didn't realize yet and only later as time went by did he realize. To hear the answer, I think, is fascinating. And I'll tell you what I mean. I just read you before. Avram returns in triumph from the war with the four kings. So he's heading southward from Damascus area, from Tel Dan, down what you and I call the Jordan Valley. You know what I'm talking about, right? He hugs a, 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 around the Canaret, then down the Jordan Valley, on the Israel side, not on the Abraham side. Followed by a long train of slaves and bo booty and goods and this and that and the other. The Rechush and the and Narshem and the Um. Okay. And the king of Sodom is waiting for him. And the Pusik is weird because it's, it's, it's a little bit out of order. It's not out of order at all, but it's, it has unusual details, which shouldn't be germane to the story. They go to tell you and then it says, But then Malki Melchon shows up. Why does he have to tell us? I'm asking a question. Why does he have to tell us? You know, the king of Sodom was on his way, but this other guy, Malki showed up. And therefore, the king of Sodom had to delay his interview with Abraham. I mean, okay. There's so many details that are left out of narrative. Why is that detail included in the narrative, in the Chumash? Leolam Vod in the Torah. Why, why is that there? Why do I have to know that the king of Sodom was on his way and then Malkitzedek like hopped around? And only after Malkitzedek leaves does the king of Sodom say, You know, why? Why does it tell you the sequence of those events? I think it's a good question. And here's what I'll tell you I think the answer is. Um, according to Chazal, now let me find the Arya Kaplan book who has a handbook of Jewish thought, which I bought many years ago, and it's kind of cool. And he's very eclectic in the sources. And 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 basically, uh, let me see here, over here. I want you to listen to the way he, uh, this, I'm going to read a, a short paragraph um, when he's trying to describe Yisrael, and talking about Avinu, Zari Kaplan. And he says, at the age of 70, Avram took a voluntary pilgrimage to the Holy Land. After a sojourn of Egypt where he gained great wealth, he returned to the Holy Land, where he became caught up in a great battle that was raging there, meaning the, the four kings and the five kings. Now listen very closely. After playing a decisive role in the battle, Abraham was blessed by shame. So this is following 
The Chazal to tell us that Malki Tzedek Malsham is identical with Shem. Shem Chom Biyavis. In other words, Avram meets his great, 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 great grandfather. Puzzle doesn't say it that way, but that's how the Chazal and the Gemara understand it. That Avram had a meeting with his ancestor. And he, but let me put it this way. You never met your great, great grandfather before? Let's say he didn't. Maybe did, maybe didn't. It's not the point. The, the question I just raised moves the Chazal and the Kabbalists to ascribe a unique importance to this. Because I'll tell you again, Avram was his great-grandson, great-great-great-great-grandson, whatever you call it, ten generations, nine generations. So why does it tell us this? It wasn't Stamazoya meeting then, right? Notice, don't read it the way I did 20 minutes ago. But read it like this. He met Shame, and he was taught by him the traditions that had been handed down from the time of autumn. Okay? This is from the Picker of Lesser. So, you have Shame Chumbi office. But shame is shame behavior. Yeshiva shame behavior. You <laughs> get it? These are the people who still keep up the monotheistic tradition such that existed. Now, whether Avram learned it from shame, Avram learned it on his own, the Machlokis and how you read the story, and the Rambam. Let's go with the Rambam today. Did Avram figure it all out on his own? So now he meets somebody, Rosh Yeshiva shame behavior, to use modern language, right? And he was taught by him the traditions, him been down from the time of Adam. What does that mean? He was taught to him the Yiddishkeit of Hasidic style. No, it's not of Chakira, you understand? But of Mesorah. At that time, Abraham took over from Shem the task of being the bearer of these traditions. And he said, he quoted here, Aran in, in the dark. Now listen very, very closely. Using the methods taught to him by Shem, Avraham sought to attain true prophecy. So in other all of his life, and this is, by the way, from the uh, Sefer Yitzira, Judah Barcelona Sefer Yitzira, from the Sefer Rokeach. Isn't that fascinating? The, the Rokeach has a commentary on the Sefer Yitzira and others. Notice, medieval, Mamish medieval uh, Rishonim, they say that the meaning of Avram and Shem is fraught with the profoundest consequences, and it wasn't some sorry, that he met him and he blessed him and he gave him Meister and all that, but a lot more than happened. Shem basically said, I hear and I see that you're a God seeker. I hear that you've given up and smashed the idols. I hear that you've sacrificed a lot for belief in one God. And now I'm going to tell you how you can talk to him. How to get Nebuah. And Abraham sought to attain true prophecy. And soon God revealed himself to Abraham and promised that his children would grow into a great nation. Okay? Which means that then you have So the sequence is that Abraham won a victory and then he met shame. Yeah, Shane blessed him. No, didn't mean, he didn't mean a blessing like a bracha for Dan Keppel, you know what I mean? Uh, it wasn't just a good luck bracha like a Rebbe. He gave him a bracha, a bracha. He gave him the most powerful spiritual shot in the arm. Meaning, he didn't pronounce on him Stamazoya bracha. He said, I'm giving you Kabbalistic secrets, Ruchnistic secrets, which will enable the qualified person which you are to now engage in the proper meditation and this, that, and the other, and and, and have communications with your bunch of them, right? You now become a, a genuine Navi. I won't tell it to someone else, but I'll tell it to you. Okay? And uh, and then the rest of it is, you know, the album goes and has talks to God and whatever. Now, uh, the reason, I think that's a fascinating shot. Now, the reason I'm mentioning this is that if he's telling about Navua, 
then he's explaining to him. No, if this account is true, it's not the only way of reading the story of Avimelech and I mean, um, uh, Malki Tzedek and Avram, but it's a classic way of reading the story of the encounter between Avram and 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 Malki Tzedek, a very famous uh, encounter. Brief, but of profoundest significance, because it's followed, as you know, in the text by a nevuah after the interview with Saddam. So, Hashem, uh, I said it well, you, Avram, have figured out, like, in a Maimonidean way, that there's a, a, a monotheism, there's one God, and all the other gods are false, and so on and so forth. That's a big madrega, no question about it. But you don't know what this God is like. I'm going to share that with you. I have these traditions from Anamarishan. You see? I'm going to share this with you. And among the many things that he shared with him is that Hashem is not only uh, all-powerful, but he's also good. As I said before, he likes the weak. He likes the widows and orphans. Oh, hey, v'gerlo, says lecha v'simla. You know, and call amon v'gerlo sa'anun, and all that kind of stuff. Derech ha'pahim rabches v'emes. And so on and so forth. Chomol dali, moizer dalim. Oh, so if that's the case, then you can't be ruthless to other people. Then how can you go a minute later and tell the king of Sodom, you keep all the people? How can you return these people to such harsh conditions of slavery? Uh, I see it didn't sink in. Even though Malki said, just told you about me. I don't like people act that way, Hashem says. And you did it anyway? Then your children will have to experience the slavery, and then only then will you get the proper empathy built into the character which I desire from the Jewish people, and then you'll understand what it's like. And then it'll be you know an educative experience that you that you never forget. The Torah will permit slavery afterwards. That's true, but as you and I know, a different kind of slavery altogether. If you follow the Torah, and you'll end up in a situation like the Rambam says. Famous Hilchas Avadim. Any not anybody with a normal mind won't hire an Evid because you have somebody who uh, give him to the Evid. You know, you got to give him the pillow. You got to give him treat him night. Who wants a, a, a slave like that? You know, it, it kills the economic utility of it. Oh, okay, fine. Then don't get a slave. So the story of the Britsman Asarim being just opposed with the interview with Saddam, where he gives everybody back to Saddam, and Rabbi Yochanan in the Gemara says that's the reason. For the Abdus, he prevented from becoming Tachas Kampashkina. And which itself is juxtaposed with the encounter with Malkitzedek. Which itself is juxtaposed with the king of Sodom trying to get there first. Which itself is juxtaposed with Abraham's triumphant return from the war of the four kings of five kings. Uh, speaks volumes, at least in my mind. And it just goes to show you, if you ever turn the microscope, not a lot, a little bit, a little bit, on any piece of Parshish Lechlecha, and I'm not saying this to be cute or for me or anything like that. It's, in my opinion, very, very revealing. Okay? Very revealing. And Avram, uh, after the Brisman of Sarum, I think kind of understood. I made a boo-boo over here. According to Rabbi Yochanan now. According to Rabbi Yochanan. I made a boo-boo. And um, this was a bummer because uh, I should have been nicer to those people and and not sent them back to lives of slavery and physical and sexual torture under uh, Sodomite rule. I think that's very heavy. Anyway, have a good job. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at 
www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.